For centuries, the Jews were God's chosen people. Yet Israel went spiritually bankrupt, belly up. Ironically, the Jews filed for chapter 11 in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 9 opened with a list of privileges that God gave to the Hebrew people. But they failed to receive the righteousness of God that's in Christ. Rather than trust in Jesus, they relied on their own good works, a self-righteousness rather than God's righteousness. And it caused them to go bankrupt spiritually. A people who were once elected by God became rejected by God. Yet chapter 11 reveals God's reorganization plan. For in the future, all God's glorious promises to Israel will be fulfilled. In the end, all Israel will be saved. Romans chapter 11 begins, I say then, has God cast away his people? And here's the big question on the minds of Paul's readers. Is God through with the Jew? And his answer is a personal one. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. See, Paul was a Hebrew and he'd been saved. Though God had put the nation on the bench, salvation was and still is open to everyone who trusts in Jesus, Jew or Gentile. See, Paul's first argument for God's faithfulness to the Jew is a personal one. But his second is historical and biblical. For in verse 2 he declares, Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now you recall Elijah. He stood up to 400 prophets of Baal, yet one woman scared him. He tucked tail and he ran from the wicked Queen Jezebel. And a depressed Elijah prayed, Woe is me! I'm the only person left who's been faithful to God. Have you ever felt that way? Like you were the only Christian left standing at your work? You're the only believer at school or in the neighborhood? Yet Paul points out that God always has a remnant of believers, even among the Jews. He writes in verse 4, But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul then applies this to his readers. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Hey, at times it can be a skeleton crew. But God always keeps a witness. Don't ever think God has abandoned you. There are more of us than you think. And according to verse 6, everybody who belongs to God is saved by grace, for he writes, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You see, apparently, grace and works are mutually exclusive. It's either one or the other. Realize, grace is grace and works are work. Grace and works are like oil and water. They're two distinct ways of approaching God. 
You're either trusting in what you do or you're trusting in what Jesus has done. And Paul is clear, we're saved by grace, not works. And so verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. Paul divides the Jewish people into two groups, the believing minority and the blinded majority. Just as it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And here Paul brings up a concept, a scary concept, that's called judicial blindness. What a frightening doctrine this is. You see, natural blindness is the result of being born into sin. This is the plight of all men. But judicial blindness is a specific judgment from God. Did you know you can harden your heart over and over and over, and eventually God lets you have your own way? It happens. Be stubborn enough, and God will let you destroy yourself. That's what had happened to the Jews. Paul supports this idea from Psalm 69. He quotes, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Notice David prophesies, let their table become a snare. And this is what occurs every Passover in Jewish homes all around the world. The Seder meal is full of symbols that point to Jesus. The hidden matzah depicts his body. The cup of redemption speaks of his blood. And the Jews stare at these symbols every year, year after year, and yet they don't see Jesus at their own table. Why? Because judicial blindness has happened to Israel. On one of our tours to Israel, we had a guide named Amnon. Amnon was a tank driver in the Yom Kippur War. The man had chutzpah. I kind of liked him. He wore these cool sunglasses, and he could tell a good joke. Here's an Amnon joke. A rabbi and a cab driver die and go to heaven. The cabbie gets in, but the rabbi doesn't, and the rabbi wants to know why. The angel tells him, when you preached, you put folks to sleep, but when he drove, he caused his passengers to pray. <laughs> At night, we would eat with Amnon, and we would share with him our love for Jesus. In fact, we took him to the Old Testament and we showed him how it identified Jesus as the Messiah, but he never budged. Finally, I asked him, Amnon, what do you think of Jesus? And his reply broke my heart. He told me, I don't think of him at all. I'm not allowed to think about him. You see, Amnon's rabbis told him it was a sin to even consider Jesus' messianic claims. The joke he told was no joke at all. Today's rabbis have put the Jews to sleep. You know, we've all met nice people whose unbelief was irrational. All their honest questions had already been answered, yet they still refuse to believe. They suffer a spiritual blindness. 
And you can open such eyes only through prayer and through love. And so verse 11, he asks, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. You remember the famous commercial from years ago, the elderly lady, she falls on the floor and you hear her high-pitched scream, I've fallen and I can't get up. You remember that? Well, the Jews had fallen, but they would get up. For through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The Jews had rejected Jesus, but God was still reaching out to the Jews. And here Paul introduces another concept. You've heard of mass evangelism and street evangelism and door-to-door evangelism and lifestyle evangelism. Well, God created another form of evangelism to reach the Jews, jealousy evangelism. He saved the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous and to cause them to desire salvation for themselves. Let's say you coach a basketball team and your star isn't playing so well. He's gotten lazy. Well, what do you do? You pinch him. You remind him that playing time is a privilege, not a right. A benching supplies the needed motivation. And this was God's strategy with Israel. He benched the Jews, and he filled his family with Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous of the salvation that's in Christ. He says in verse 12, Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Paul's eagerness to preach to the Gentiles what was to create a jealousy among the Jews. You know, there's a scientist in Naples, Florida, who has invented a new way to kill mosquitoes. They're drawn to a trap by a tantalizing aroma called cow's breath. It's a synthetic chemical that mimics a cow's breath. Apparently, mosquitoes love the smell. Well, we need to have that kind of effect on lost people. The way cow's breath affects a mosquito. We as Christians need to create a jealousy among those who don't know Christ. Do we live an attractive life? Is there a bounce in our step? Is there a peace in our hearts? Do we make folks jealous of the joy we have in Jesus? We should. The Jews' rejection of Jesus led to salvation for the Gentiles, but now the Gentiles should care about the Jews. Paul is flaunting the Gentile salvation to make the Jews jealous. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The Jews will one day be accepted again, he says. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, notice God's kingdom here is like a tree. Natural branches, or the Jews, were broken off so that the wild branches, or Gentiles, could be grafted in. And with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, 
Do not boast against the branches. And Paul cautions the Gentiles about getting haughty or feeling superior to the Jews. Gentiles were grafted into promises that God intended for the Jews. Now all believers are of the same tree, we're of the same stock. It's interesting, though, that Paul calls the Gentiles a wild olive tree. Did you know we're the original wild thing? I couldn't resist that. I, I, I just had to do that. We're the wild thing. Did you know that? Hey, the Jews were domesticated, raised under the law, seedlings in God's garden, whereas the Gentiles, we were the wild shoots. We lacked the moral foundation in the godly upbringing of the Jews. We were grafted in by grace. Verse 18 But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And here, Paul is worried about reverse discrimination. You see, for centuries, the danger was the Hebrews feeling superior to the Gentiles. But now, Paul fears that the Gentiles are going to look down their nose at the Christ-rejecting Jews. Paul worried the Gentiles would forget how much they owed the Jews. Hey, Israel gave to the world the Word of God. The written Word, the Bible, was written by Jews. And of course, the living Word, Jesus, God's Son, was a Jew. The Gentiles owed Israel a debt of gratitude. How could we ever be anti-Semitic? And yet, the last 2,000 years of human history has validated Paul's concern For sadly, the church has been the number one enemy of the Jewish people. I love the quote, How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. Christians should love and support and pray for and witness to the Jews, both at home and in Israel. Verse 19 addresses Gentile believers He says, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Hey, rather than spurn the Jews, we as Christians need to learn from the Jews. The Jews failed to persist in their faith. They failed to continue in God's goodness. And if we repeat their mistake, we'll surely suffer their plight. See, Paul is clear. It is up to us not just to have faith, but to continue in our faith. See, belief is not a one-time sign on the bottom line kind of proposition. We have to continue in our faith if we expect to be saved. Otherwise, we'll be cut off. Once a woman in Toledo, Ohio, was found guilty of manslaughter. It seems she shot her boyfriend. The report I read said that it occurred while they were arguing over the Bible. 
And though it wasn't stated in the article, I'm certain I know what the couple was discussing. Once saved, always saved. For the most hostile discussions I've ever had with other Christians was over this doctrine. Now, I'm going to tell you where I stand, but first I just want to say that there are good Bible-believing Christians who line up on both sides of this argument. It's not a subject to divide over. At the end of the day, wisdom will agree to disagree. So here's my position. I believe it's what Paul is teaching here in Romans 11. It's nothing that I do or not do that earns God's salvation. Thus, there's nothing I can do or not do to forfeit that salvation. God's only requirement is faith. But if I renounce my faith, or if I choose to no longer have faith, how then can I expect to be saved? The bottom line, you have to continue in your faith. You see, faith is not a date on the calendar that you can look back on. Oh, this was when I put my faith in Jesus. It's not a contract you sign, then go off and forget about it. No, faith is an attitude that we grow and that we cultivate. Faith is like a plant. Starve it and it dies. Feed it and it lives and bears fruit. For the record, I do believe in eternal security. As long as I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm eternally secure. But the perseverance of our faith is taught throughout the Bible. For further study, you can read Colossians 1, Galatians 5, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 1. I encourage you to read those chapters. Verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And here's really good news. Even if you are cut off, return to faith and you can be grafted in again. As long as you're breathing, there's hope. Especially for Israel. He says, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Any horticulturist will tell you that it's far more difficult to graft a wild branch onto a vine than it is to regraft a natural branch that was formerly broken off. God did the hard work by saving the Gentiles. Thus, it'll be much easier for him to bring home the Jews. I like to quote by C.S. Lewis on the salvation of the Jews. He once explained, In a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. Everyone else is a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now remember, a biblical mystery is a truth we learn through revelation, not investigation. We wouldn't know it if God didn't reveal it to us. A mystery is a sacred secret. And in the Old Testament, the church was a mystery. God began salvation with Israel, and he will end salvation with Israel. 
But today is an anomaly. The Jews have been cut off, and God is grafting in non-Jews are those of us who are Gentiles. But notice verse 25. Israel's blindness is temporary, for when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God will one day re-engage the Jews. And I believe the phrase fullness of the Gentiles refers to a specific number. In other words, when the last Gentile gets saved, at that exact moment, the Lord Jesus is going to come in the clouds and snatch away his church. That means that if you're those, that last holdout, friend, please, you need to get on with it this morning. Give your life to Jesus, man. The rest of us are ready to go home. Verses 26 through 32 are prophetic of the future. He says, and so all Israel will be saved. In other words, when the fullness of the Gentiles is in and the church has been raptured, then God will turn his attention back to the nation of Israel and he'll use seven years of great tribulation to purify the Jews. He says, as it is written, and he quotes here Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. One day the Jews will be forgiven. Every Hebrew alive, when Jesus returns in power and glory, will put their faith in him and be saved. The Bible teaches that one day all Jews will be Jews for Jesus. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 tells us how this will happen. The Lord says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Here's what's going to happen. When Israel sees the Savior's scars, they're going to realize their mistake. They executed their own Messiah. They're going to repent of their sin And God is going to forgive them when they put their faith in Jesus. In a sense, Thomas is a type of the end-time Jews. You remember Thomas refused to believe until he saw the scars in Jesus' hands and side? Likewise, this is what will convince the future Israel. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved For the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. See, God's promises aren't like a gallon of milk. There's no expiration date. Israel rejected God's blessings, but God didn't take them off the table. To the contrary, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Rather than for a limited time only, they are available until the end of the age. He says, for as you were once disobedient to God yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. All mankind, Jews and Gentiles, have been in God's doghouse. No one can get the big head. If we receive anything from God or become anything for God, it is all due to his marvelous mercy. Now, for three chapters, Paul has been pounding out some mind-crunching theology. 
And yet he closes his theology here with a doxology. We go from head scratching to toe tapping, from pondering to praise. For he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. If you think you've got God wired, you've got the wrong God. St. Jerome once said, The Bible is shallow enough for a babe to stand in without fear of drowning, yet deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching bottom. The Bible is a reliable record of God's dealings with humanity. But if you have to have every question answered and every nuance explained before you'll believe, then you'll never believe. Think of it. If we could know all there is to know about God with our little pea brains, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? Faith in an infinite God will require a certain amount of mystery. I love the old adage, what's over my head is still under God's feet. And verse 34 stretches our understanding of the greatness of our God. For he has no colleagues, he has no counselors, and he has no creditors. God alone calls the shots. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? Notice what he's saying. God has no peer. God needs no help. And God owes no one anything. God is in a class all by himself. Don't forget it. Hey, this is a problem for the proud. But oh, this is a comfort for the humble. And Romans 9 through 11 closes. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. For 11 chapters now, Paul has been flaunting the mercies of God. And by this point, we should be in awe. We're justified and redeemed. Salvation is God's to give, and he's chosen to give it to us. But in light of God's love and grace, how are we to live? Well, here's the first step. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now remember, the Levitical sacrifice of the Old Testament was a butchered carcass burned on the altar. But in the New Testament, God no longer likes his sacrifices well done. (laughs) Today, he orders them rare. He wants a sacrifice that's alive. He wants a sacrifice that's still kicking and moving on the plate. God is now into living sacrifices. You remember Abraham's son Isaac was a living sacrifice? He willingly offered his body to God, and he allowed the old man to bind him to the altar. Isaac had no plans of his own, nothing he had to do, no place he had to be. He was available for whatever the Father had in mind. We need to offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices. Once there was a little girl, she sat at the end of the row in church. When the offering plate was passed that morning, she took the plate, she set it down in the aisle, And she stepped out and stepped in the offering plate. The usher was appalled. What are you doing? 
She replied, well, I learned in Sunday school this morning we should give ourselves to God. And indeed we should. After all that God has done for us, this, Paul says, is our reasonable service. Well, the first step in living for God is to give your body. The second step is to renew your mind, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. I love the Phillips translation here. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Hey, resist the pressure to go with the flow of this world. Remember, toilet paper goes with the flow, not Christians. Rather than blend in, we should stand out. You see, a Christian is either a thermometer or a thermostat. Some believers are thermometers. They conform to the room temperature. They try to be cool or gravitate toward what's hot. The crowd dictates the life they live. But God wants us to be a thermostat. Rather than register the temperature, he wants us to be setting it. Paul continues, he says, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And here's the key to living a transformed life, renewing your mind. Jesus changes our heart, but we have to change our mind. It's up to me to put on a new identity and to cultivate character. I put off the old logic and the ugly habits, and I put on a new way of thinking and living my life. To walk worthy of God's mercies, you give your body, you renew your mind, and finally here, or thirdly here, you humble your heart. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Soberly means as it really is. The idea is objectivity. We as Christians need to be objective with ourselves. Humility is seeing myself not as others see me or even as I see myself, but I need to see me as God sees me. This is true humility. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And here the church is compared to a body. You know, if you're an adult of average weight, it's amazing what your body does every 24 hours. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 168 million miles. You take 23,040 breaths. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a quarter pounds of food. Some of us more, some of us less. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You move 750 muscles and you exercise 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel tired at the end of a day. Your body is made up of several trillion cells, all linked together, functioning as one unit. And so is the body of Christ. We, as the church, are many members, but we are one body. We're a blend of unity and diversity working as one. And each member of the body contributes to the whole by using the gift 
that God gives them. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. They say upon his death, the famous violinist Paganini, he donated his instrument to the city of Genoa. But with one stipulation, his violin was never to be played. (laughs) Yet when Jesus died, he too gave gifts to his church, but he intends for us to use them. We need to play our gifts every day. The Holy Spirit imparts to every Christian at least one of the spiritual gifts listed here in verses 6 through 8. These are supernatural enablings, not learned skills or natural abilities, but these gifts are God-given motivations. And it's spiritual gifts that shape and empower our ministry. He goes through them here. He says, first is prophecy. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, often prophecy is associated with foretelling, but its primary meaning is forthtelling. It's been said a prophet was not known primarily for his hindsight or his foresight, but for his insight. Here's a person who boldly speaks the message that God gives him and prophesies to others. Second in the list is ministry. He says, let us use it in our ministering. The gift of ministry is the supernatural knack for helping the cause of Christ in practical and intangible ways. This is the person who likes to roll up his shirt sleeves. His sermons are in sweat. Third on the list is teaching. He who teaches in teaching. This gift helps earthly minds understand heavenly truths. You know, a good teacher, they say, puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. He can make complex truths simple. It's been said a teacher's task is to take a room full of live wires and see that they're properly grounded. The fourth gift is exhortation. He who exhorts in exhortation. The gift of teaching instructs us what to do, whereas exhortation encourages us to do it. I refer to the gift of exhortation as the spiritual jumper cables of the church. Exhortation jump starts, brothers and sisters, with weak batteries. The fifth gift is giving. He who gives with liberality. Now, every believer should develop the discipline of giving a portion of their resources to God. But the person with this gift has a special knack for opening up their wallet to bless others and to further God's work. I'll never forget the the fellow who came to our church and He gave out $100 handshakes. In other words, he would shake your hand, and in doing so, he would slip you a crisp $100 bill that he had folded up and put in his palm. So when he shook his hand, he'd just slip you that $100 bill. I never missed shaking that guy's hand whenever he showed up at Calvary Chapel. He just had the gift of giving. The sixth gift, he who leads with diligence. The gift of leading is spiritual management. You know, it's been said, don't agonize, organize. And this gift strategizes in godly ways. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 instructs the church to function decently and in order. And this gift, the gift of leading, helps us to do just that. And the final motivational gift is mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
You know, mercy has been defined as two hearts tugging at the same load. Again, we all should be merciful, but the person with the gift of mercy is given by God an extra helping. Now, folks always ask, how do I discover my gift? Well, there's a simple exercise. Let's say my granddaughter came down the center aisle here this morning carrying a potted plant that she had made for me in Sunday school. But she slips and she drops it. Crash! Dirt and pottery spill everywhere. Well, how would you react to that? If you start looking for a broom to help clean up, then you have the gift of ministry. If you pull out your wallet and say, oh, sweetie, don't worry, I'll pay for that pot. You have the gift of giving. If you say to that little girl, young lady, be warned, thus saith the Lord, there'll be many opportunities to stumble in life. Well, then you might have the gift of prophecy. If you show her a clever foot maneuver to right herself the next time she slips, then your gift is probably teaching. If you think, oh, we need to rearrange the chairs in this room so this never happens again, well, then that's the gift of leading and spiritual management. Or if you'd sit down and give her a little pep talk and say, oh, you can do better next time, Hannah, that's exhortation. Or if you run to the child, just hug on her and cuddle her, obviously, you have the gift of mercy. But understand, there would be seven diverse reactions among the people in this room all of which would be valid and God-ordained responses. And this is why we need each other. This is why we need all the gifts. For a healthy church appreciates its diversity as it works to show its unity. Now, for the rest of chapter 12, Paul follows a style of teaching practiced by the rabbis called stringing beads. You know, as a lady places a bead on a necklace one at a time, rabbis would teach by stringing together random truths. And this is what Paul does here. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. You know, often we learn what a person loves by noticing what they hate. We need to hate what God hates and love what God loves. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence or being lazy, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Horse racing fans will recall the famed thoroughbred secretariat. In the Kentucky Derby, a mile-long race, secretariat clocked a faster time in each successive quarter mile. In other words, the horse ran stronger as the race progressed. And this is, God, this is how God wants you and I to run. He uses tribulation in our lives, not to wear us out, but to make us stronger. It's through various trials that we grow endurance. He says, continuing steadfastly in prayer. And the greatest gift you can show a friend is to pray for them. But that's not all you can do for them. Also distributing to the needs of the saints. We need to pray for each other, but then we need to see needs and be willing to meet needs. Paul goes on, given to hospitality. A man named John Thomas wrote an interesting letter once to dear Abby. 
He said, I'm presently completing the second year of a three-year survey of the hospitality or lack of it in churches. To date, of the 195 churches I visited, I was spoken to by someone other than an official greeter only once. And then it was to ask me to move my feet. I hope old John Thomas has never visited Calvary Chapel. There's only one thing better than Southern hospitality, and that's Christian hospitality. And I hope we're known for both. Well, Paul is stringing beads. Blessed. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. There's a Chinese proverb. If your enemy wrongs you, buy each of his children a drum. That's a funny idea, a gift that's actually a curse. But we march to a different drummer. We turn our enemies into friends by blessing them, not cursing them. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, it's been said, a sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy shared is a joy made double. Real fellowship divides our grief and multiplies our gladness. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't play favorites or be biased. Treat everyone equally. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the the humble. Don't just fraternize with the folks that make you look good or occupy the next rung on the social ladder you hope to climb to. No, hang out with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Oh, be rock solid in your beliefs and in your convictions, but keep your personal opinions flexible and be open to new input. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. This doesn't mean let people push you around. No, when men do evil to you, fight back, defend yourself and others, but just do it with love. Don't fight evil with evil, fight evil with good. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And then verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. At times, our stand for righteousness in a hostile world makes peace impossible. But make sure the problem is your stand for the truth, not your pride or your ignorance or your prejudice or your inflexibility. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, the law of Moses specified an eye for an eye. And why did it do that? Because the human tendency is to one-up the person who harms you. Oh, punch me in the jaw, and I'm going to crack your jaw and kick you in the shins. I'm going to do one better to you than you did to me. And you see, this is why God is the only person we can trust to dish out vengeance. It's only God who needs to handle the paybacks. Here's what we should do. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, in ancient times... Folks didn't have a pilot light on their furnace. So if their fire died out, they would go next door and they would retrieve hot embers to relight their fire. And they would carry it back in a pan on their head. 
Thus, coals of fire on his head was a kindness done. Thus, we should be kind to our enemies, not vengeful. You never win by trying to even the score. Paul isn't saying that if we're attacked, we should just sit there and take it. No, we need to fight back, just not with evil. Retaliate in kind, and you're no better than your enemy. Verse 21 tells us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you say it with me together? But overcome evil with good. Lord, help us to do just that. And truly, truly represent our Savior and the cross that he bore for this sinful world. Lord, may we overcome evil with good. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Bless us with your gifts. Use us, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your amazing mercies toward us. May we live in light of them. Make this world a better place through the life that we live and through the example that we set. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.